Somewhere down the line, the old devil has sold us a bill of goods and a lot of lies that very subtly have creeped in. We've bought them. And one of them is that there's something very extraordinary about Bible characters, that uh, they were a different breed of folk. You know, we uh, act like they don't make their kind anymore, like there's some difference, like God used to do some things that he doesn't do anymore. And like my daddy used to say on occasion when I'd take off on something, he'd say, well, there's only one thing wrong with that idea. It just ain't so. And... Uh, knew how to cut me down. And, you know, it's that way about this idea. God hasn't changed. He hasn't gone out of the business of doing anything that he ever did. And tonight what I want to do with you is just look at a typical day in the life of Christians. Just an average, typical day. And in order to do it, we're going to need uh, to read a little bit more than I usually like to read. I want to read... Acts 3, verses 1 through 8. I'm in the Living Bible, if you're following along. And verse 9 also. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the 3 o'clock prayer meeting. And as they approached the temple, they saw a man lame from birth, carried along the street and laid beside the temple gate, the one called the Beautiful Gate, as was his custom every day. As Peter and John were passing by, he asked them for some money. They looked at him intently, and then Peter said, Look here. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting a gift. But Peter said, We don't have any money for you, but we'll give you something else. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the hand and pulled him to his feet, and as he did, the man's feet and ankle bones were healed and strengthened so that he came up with a leap stood there a moment and began walking. Then walking and leaping and praising God, he went into the temple with them. When the people, then the people inside saw him walking and heard him praising God. The personal touch of the Holy Spirit of God is that distinctive feature of the Christian life. There's only one Christian life. It's the life lived by Jesus in the believer there are a lot of imitations, but there's only one real thing. And the personal touch was on the hand of these men. I don't set this as a pattern. I'm not saying on Wednesday as you come to prayer meeting, look for a beggar to heal. But I'm saying there's some things within the passage that are just basic, that were there, that we need to appropriate for our lives. The personal touch. First of all, I would say and very obviously that the personal touch reveals the worth of the individual. Now, note who this was. This was just a beggar. And we're a lot more socially conscious than folks used to be. Uh, we get upset about it now. We seem to care more. We want to provide. But in this day, the poor were cheap and their lives were relatively worthless. And besides that, the fact that this man was lame meant that somebody had done something wrong. The Jews believed that if this man was lame, his parents could have sinned. They believed, are you ready for this, that the baby could have sinned in the womb and God caused him to be lame. Whenever he was born a cripple, 
whatever position it, uh, his parents held in the community and in the religious faith, it dropped them to the lowest rung of the ladder. He had always been a burden to them. He had never been able to take care of himself. And now as an adult man, he was reduced to being carried and laid in the dirt every day, begging people for nickels and dimes to keep him going. But the personal touch reveals the worth of the individual. He was just a cripple, just a lame beggar, but he was un of unlimited intrinsic value to God. Every man is worth as much. I think God must surely be disgusted as we do not love those whom he loves, for whom he died. He was unlovely. He had nothing to offer. But yet, he was worth more than the entire created order to God. The personal touch reveals the worth of the individual. And bear in mind that every man, every woman is worth as much to God. How often are we near those who like to be near us? How often do we associate with those who want to associate with us? Even as we seek the gifts of God in the fellowship of his people, how often are we after that for one reason, what it can do for us? Say, Lord, I want it. And we crave what God can do, and we want it because it'll do something right here for us. But the personal touch reveals that God really does love every man. This is not an illustration. It's a real-life incident. But yet I'm sure that God allowed the writer to recall it to illustrate what he meant. You know, God specifically, it's not the world that he loves. It's not mankind and humanity, but it zeroes right in. And someone has said, if you feel and accept the love of God, you feel as though he loves you so much, surely he just couldn't love anybody else that much. God loves us that much. And the personal touch reveals the worth of the individual. But the personal touch obviously reveals the power of God. Picture the beggar now. He was a grown man. Every day, it says, as was his custom, he was carried and laid in the dirt. Why at the gate of the temple? Because the good folk came to the temple. The practicing religious folk came to the temple and they might... Uh, reduce themselves and stoop to help him out and go away patting themselves on the back. He went where there was the most chance that he'd get something out of it. Now, he sees Peter and John coming. I used to think just an old fisherman, you know, well, I don't even like to fish that much, and, and what could that mean? But this was a staple food. It was a main industry, and a commercial fisherman made one of the better livings in the area. And this a uh, beggar saw these men coming. He'd probably seen them before, at least seen their kind by their dress and their tanned skin and the, uh, the looks of them. He figured out probably who they were, and he thought, now these guys can help me if they want to. What he didn't know was they'd quit their jobs and gone following some itinerant preacher who'd gotten himself killed. 
but he thought they could help him. He said, alms, give me something. And then suddenly, he wasn't sitting in the dirt anymore. He was standing up. He said he stood for a moment. Then he jumped up in the air. When he came down, he was praising the Lord. The personal touch reveals the power of God. Jesus was supposed to be dead. You know, it wasn't anything unusual for a Messiah to come on the scene. Every year or two, they had somebody come around to claim to be the Messiah and got himself a little following. He got himself in trouble sooner or later, and he was killed, and that was the end of it. But suddenly, this guy discovered he'd met somebody that had been with Jesus, and that's where it was. Jesus was alive, and his power was obvious because of the personal touch in the lives of his people. You know, that's the way almost everybody comes to Jesus. It's not really as spontaneous as it looks frequently when decisions are made, when people commit their lives to Christ. They've seen a witness. They have a friend. They've come in contact with someone who knows Jesus and they've recognized something that they don't have in their lives. Almost everyone comes to Jesus through contact with somebody who knows him and whose life demonstrates his power. The power of God in his children is the greatest mover of the minds and the hearts of men in the universe. And what he gives sticks. It's real power. He said, I don't give you what the world gives that lasts for a season. It's gone and that's all there is to it but I give you something that stays. The personal touch. It reveals the worth of the individual. I want to zero in on this. It reveals something about the people of God. Just some basic things about the people of God, remembering that this is a very typical day in a Christian life. There's nothing unusual about Jesus reaching out and touching people who have need. That's what he does when we cooperate with him. Notice about these men of God that they were men of prayer and worship. They had blocked out this period of time designated as the hour of prayer and every day they dropped what they were doing, they guarded it, and they set aside a time to pray and to worship God and to fellowship with Him. Don't expect to be some kind of superhero Christian if you won't be obedient. They were men of prayer and worship, and they're just no shortcut. We'll do anything that we can think of to do in order to be the kind of Christians we want to be except what God says. I know how it feels. God touches your life and somebody tries to counsel you and help you grow. And they say, now what you got to do is be in the book every day and pray and talk about Jesus and on and on they go. And you know, that sounds awful dull, maybe. That's not near as exciting. I mean, you know, you expect skyrockets or something and uh, soft music in the background and a camera and widescreen panoramic vision and all of that. But you know, like it or not, that's the way it is. And there's just no chance that the Christian who doesn't spend time with God is going to have the personal touch and the power of God on their lives. No possibility. 
Remember Matthew 21, 44, where Jesus says, you want to find a boulder and jump up and down on the boulder and you break your neck. And he said, but watch out, because if you get under the thing and it rolls on you, it'll grind you into dust. Uh, so, you know, go right ahead and learn the hard way. Some of us had to. But don't expect to change anything. They were men of prayer and worship. Verse 1 says that they were just going to the temple at the hour of prayer. But notice again about these men of God that they were men of genuine concern for other people who were willing to share what God had done for them. Verse 6, Peter said, We don't have any money for you, but I'll give you something else. I wonder how many of you have seen a beggar on a city street. I used to go downtown with my parents in Houston as a little boy, and there were two men. And just a few years ago, they were still there. I haven't seen them this last time we lived in Houston. I don't know what's happened to them. But one of them was a man without legs who sat on a little cart, kind of like a mechanic would go under a car on, and pushed his way down the street with his hands and begged for money, sold pencils. The other was a blind man who had a dog and an old alto saxophone who played and played every day the day long for whatever people would drop in the cup as they walked by. Thinking back on it, and even as I was kind of an adult and back and seeing them again, you know how I felt? I wanted to get away. I would find myself going downtown wondering if I was going to be subjected to seeing those men that day. You know, God loved them. I couldn't have cared less. Now, if you're on your way to worship, or if when you are, let's put it that way, I wonder how many times we drive right by opportunities that would honor God. They were men of genuine concern for other people who were willing to share what God had done. And in the name of God and meeting our wonderful timetable and being faithful to the church, people could bounce right into hell and we'd never know it. So Peter and John, you know, now they weren't working. They were working for Jesus and in cash it wasn't paying off just yet. And uh, the old boy says, alms, alms, give me something. I need money. Well, what would you do? You know, you don't have any money in your pocket. You say, well, fella, I'm sorry, or not say anything at all. But because the personal touch of God was on his life, Peter said, hey, I don't have any money, but I do have something else to share with you. I'll give you something else. The men of God in this story, they were men of prayer and worship, men of genuine concern, willing to share what God had done for them. They didn't have much, but what they had belonged to him, and that was Jesus. There's a body of water in the Holy Land, the Dead Sea, and it takes and it takes and it never gives. Nothing can live there. It's so salty it'll support the body of any person. 
It's very stagnant, it's a very unpleasant place to be. But then further north on the Jordan, there's that sea, the little lake of Galilee, crystal blue, flowing to feed the river below and the land that provides support for the people of the area through the fish and the products it provides. And there are Christians like that. We want so much what God has to offer, but we're so afraid to let go of even a little bit of it. You remember manna in the desert? God said, all right, you're hungry, I'm going to feed you. I've got one condition. Just get out every morning and get it. Well, some of them were pretty smart. You know, looking for shortcuts isn't new. And they went out with their clothes baskets and their trash cans and filled everything up. And the next morning they slept in, got up ready for breakfast. And you know what? It was rotten, stinking, spoiled. No good at all because they tried to hoard what God had done for them. These were men of genuine concern who were willing to share what God had given them. I may have said that four or five times by now, but it's important. It's important. I would hardly say that it is a mark of the Holy Spirit that we are selfish. But again, verse 8. I want you to notice that God got the glory. Peter reached down and lifted him up. He received strength. He stood. And now here's what happened. He said, Peter, I'll tell you what. Man, I'm going to testify to all your crusades. I'm going to be your PR man. We're going to line up advertising. We're going to contact the folks, and we're going to have crusades, and we're going to be the hottest thing in evangelism. I get tired of that parading people around, telling what the evangelist has done. He didn't say that. He didn't say, man, what's your name? He didn't care. He's just praising the Lord. Now, when God acts in his power and in his sovereignty to bring honor to himself, to reach down and touch a need, it's going to be apparent to anybody with a lick of sense that God did it and not somebody else. When God acts, there's just no mistaking where the credit grows, goes. He leaped up and walked and stood and praised God because the men of God were not nearly so concerned with their own welfare, with their own credit, with receiving credit for what was done. They were not nearly so concerned with that as they were in letting Jesus serve himself through their lives. Personal touch reveals the worth of the individual, the power of God. It tells us some very basic things about the people of God, people of prayer and worship, concern, a sharing heart, and people who, when God uses them, it's obvious that he did it. Now, one thing remains to be mentioned. The personal touch reveals the responsibility of the one who is touched. Put yourself in the place of the beggar. This old boy didn't have much to offer. Neither do we. He knew it, though. He was aware of it. And here come these two burly Galileans 
They just have to be making a lot of money. And he says, give me something. And the fellow says, I'm sorry, I don't have any money. But now, you know, Peter stopped and looked at him. He said, okay, if you don't have any money, don't stand there and gawk at me. Leave me alone. No. Peter said, I don't have any money, but look at me. He said, fellow, I don't want to look at you. He said, reach out and take my hand. He didn't say, what for? He just did it. That man could have sat there in the dust and groveled in poverty and misery and lameness for the rest of his life if he had not been willing to heed the command and to do what he was told to do. He didn't say, look, fella, I know what I need, and I need money, and if you don't have it, leave me alone. God, I need that woman. Lord, I need that job. Lord, you know what I want to do. Why aren't you letting me do it? If you won't do what I want you to do, just leave me alone. Peter said, I don't have any money, but I'll give you something else. Look at me. And he did. He was sitting there expecting enough, enough for a donut and a cup of coffee, and suddenly his need had been dissolved, his infirmity had been healed, and his problems were gone. Now, that's the way God is. Listen, any time we're ready to do business on God's terms, any time, He's going to do something we didn't expect him to do. It's, all, it's just that way. And I don't know why this ought to surprise us. We all know, folks, and probably if some of us have been through it ourselves, we just felt like if they couldn't understand it, it just wasn't so. But in Isaiah, God speaking through the prophet says, your thoughts are just not my thoughts. And my ways are as high above your ways as the sky is above the earth. If God is God, and if we are who we know we are, why should it surprise us when God does something unexpected? I like the way uh, Paul says in one of his letters, and it's real funny the way it's worded. He says, if anybody thinks he knows something, he has not yet known anything as he ought to know. And here it is, boy, we're saved. So now, Lord, boy, I just know what you want me to do, and here it is. Let's do it. And you know, sad but true, if God's never surprised you, Jesus is not really Lord in your life. Because God is going to honor himself, and he said it, his thoughts are not ours, and his ways are not our ways. There could have been a most unhappy ending to the incident just an average afternoon in the life of these Christians if the one who was touched by the power of God hadn't let God do what God wanted to do. You see, believe it or not, God's not interested in doing what we want to do. He wants to do what he wants to do. And just very seldom do the two coincide. You know that? It doesn't matter if what we want to do is good and noble and holy and righteous and designed to give God 
that helping hand he's always needed till we came along. It just doesn't matter. All that matters is that his way is accomplished. Now, the lesson that this fellow could have learned the hard way was that it's going to be God's way or not at all. I used to strike bargains with God so many times. I didn't strike a bargain with anybody but me because God doesn't make bargains. There at the Red Sea, the people, uh, they weren't at the sea. They came to uh, the southern part of the land of Canaan. They were camped at Kadesh Barnea and uh, Moses formed his 12-man committee and sent them out and they came back and said, we can't do it. There's no way. In other words, they were saying, God, you're a liar. You told us to come up here. You told us what to do and we just can't do it. There's no way. Why did you ask us to do that? Well, you know, the Lord told Moses, he said, they're all going to die in the wilderness. It was my time. It was my command. I'd revealed myself to them in every way possible, and they blew it. And Moses told the folks, you blew it. And they said, oh, we're sorry. We're ready. Now we'll do it God's way. And God said, "Uh uh-uh. You can linger too long. When God speaks, it means what he says. How many of you parents like it when you tell your kids to do something and they come around in a little while and say, now what did you say? Oh, I was real good at that. Mother, what was it you wanted me to do? Oh, yeah. Did you really mean that? And is there any difference in what we do with, with God? How many times does God have to say something? You know, most of the time when somebody talks to me about the will of God, they say, well, you know, I used to feel that God wanted me to do thus and so. Or, you know, there was a time when I did this or did that and God said it. Well, if he said it, did he change his mind? Well, the problem is you'd need to sit up and dust off the backside and be about what he told you to do the first time because until that's done, likely nothing else is going to be assigned to you. The responsibility of the one touched. He had to heed and obey. This isn't just, you know, real thrilling, real exciting. It's just a typical day in the life of these Christians. The personal touch of God was on them. His power, the way he loves people, the way his spirit affects the character of his people, and the fact that when he speaks, just better do it. Now, I don't know your hang-ups. You don't all even have hang-ups. I used to resent it. People say, well, what's your hang-up? You know, let Jesus straighten it out. But I know this. It may not be a hang-up at all. It may just be a little something missing. The fine, keen edge may be gone off your joy. It just may not be like it was. Well, grovel in the dust if you choose. But if not, just reach out, let him pick you up, and send you on your way. God speaks to us as we worship. He would say to you, if you don't know Jesus, you meet him here at the place where he alone can help you. You give him your heart. Ask him to do what you can't do. As a Christian, God could speak and say, it's time to get on with it. It's time for you to invest your life in this church. It's time for you as a Christian and a member to quit sitting on the sidelines. We've got all kinds of spectators. We need some squad members. 
whatever God would have you do, that's what worship is, and you've not worshiped until you've done it. Whatever it is he demands. We're going to have a time of invitation, and I'm going to ask that what God demands of you, you do. The invitation is going to be in your hand. It's up to you. It's been extended. Christ offers you himself, and what you do with him determines the length and the character of the invitation. What you do with him may very well determine what somebody else does with him. And before you take his authority and close the door on somebody else, please be sure that you've done what he demands. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you just live as we let you live. And Lord, every day and in common experiences everywhere we go, Lord Jesus, you want to be yourself. You want to reach out and meet needs around us. Lord, forgive us as we take the attitude that unless it's spectacular and magnificent, we don't want it. May we today just let go and let you very personally and privately touch us to the glory of Jesus. Father, implant that sense of urgency that says the time is now. Don't wait. And for what you're about to do, I offer grateful thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.